Yeah. This be a life, no gimmick. everybody and welcome back to the triple s podcast i'm your host brandon smith uh so today we're gonna have a shorter one for you guys not as much to talk about uh, obviously no college football going on other than the senior bowl which we will talk about a little bit uh no nfl games this weekend um, of course this is when we would usually have the pro bowl but there is no physical pro bowl game being played they're just doing some virtual stuff like verses with highlight tapes uh they're doing some madden stuff as well uh, so we, not much NFL stuff to talk about. We're going to talk about some of the upcoming UFC cards because during uh, Khabib versus, or excuse me, Khabib, uh, during Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier, there was a bunch of UFC fights that were announced uh, during that card that were just absolutely nuts, including a pay-per-view with three title fights, including of those three title fights, one super fight. Uh, and we're going to get to that as well. So stay tuned. It's going to be a good one. All right, so as we usually do, we're going to start off in the NFL. Uh, as I said, no games this weekend. It would usually be the uh, Pro Bowl, but between the division, or sorry, the conference championships and the Super Bowl, you get that week off. That's right now. So no NFL football, kind of sad. But we're going to rewind, and I'm going to take you through the conference championship games to set up the Super Bowl. And just to give you guys a heads up, I'm not going to talk too much about the Super Bowl because that'll kind of take away from next week's, next Saturday's episode when I'll give you a very detailed Super Bowl primer uh, between the Chiefs and the Buccaneers. So I kind of let, let the cat out of the bag there. If you didn't already know, uh, the two teams that won the conference championships were the two that I predicted would actually lose. I thought the Packers would beat the Buccaneers at home and I thought the Bills would upset the Chiefs. It ended up being the other way around where the Buccaneers were able to pull off the upset over the Packers. Tom Brady does it again. First year in the NFC, gets to the Super Bowl. Uh, and then in the AFC, Patrick Mahomes going back-to-back -back for Super Bowl appearances. So we're going to start off with the first game, the NFC Championship. Uh, final score was 31-26 for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And when you hear that, you might think, oh my God, Tom Brady must have had a lights-out game. He out-dueled Aaron Rodgers and had a great game which it's partially true. Brady had his moments for sure. He finished the game with uh, 20 of 36 completions, 280 yards, three touchdowns, but he also had three interceptions and got sacked once. So it wasn't, it wasn't a great showing for Tom Brady. And, you know, one of those interceptions was definitely his fault. He overthrew Mike Evans a little bit and uh, the ball was intercepted off of a tip by Jerry Alexander. So it wasn't a stellar performance for Brady. But what I will say is that Tampa Bay defense is no joke. Uh, while the offense didn't play a great game for the entire game, they definitely had flashes. I mean, they did put up 31 points. It was really the defense that was more impressive for me in this game. Uh, they intercepted Aaron Rodgers once, but the coverage all around, and we're going to talk about this because it, it was a hotly uh, debated issue was the coverage of both teams and the officiating by the referees in this game. But before we talk about the uh, the coverage real quick, I just want to give a shout out to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers because uh, the Green Bay Packers are a team that has, for, for it's widely considered a, a two-headed monster in the backfield with Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams, two very good running backs. But they also have a rookie running back, A.J. Dillon. I've talked about him a couple times on the podcast, who impresses me as well. And... They kept those three guys to 67 yards rushing. 
which is very, very light. They kept Aaron Jones, who's a very talented receiver out of the backfield, to four catches for seven yards as well. That's light. Uh, A.J. Dillon had one catch for 13 yards, and Jamal Williams had four for 22. So none of those three really, really strong running backs. I shouldn't say three really strong. Aaron Jones is a very strong running back. Jamal Williams is also probably one of the best second options there is, and then A.J. Dillon's a good rookie. But it's a good backfield, and they kept them very much in check. Then on the receiver side of things, they kept Devontae Adams to nine catches for 67. Um, you know, For Devontae Adams, that's actually pretty quiet. He could easily have gone for you know nine catches for 167 against a subpar team, maybe with two or three touchdowns. So, I mean, it does look like a decent stat line, but the Tampa Bay Buccaneers nonetheless did their job. Uh, they forced a fumble of Aaron. They forced two fumbles of Aaron Jones, actually. They were just making plays all over the field. They really impressed me, and they came away with the win. And you know what the old saying is, defense wins championships, and Tampa Bay's defense has put them in a position to do so. And you know that Tom Brady's not going to make the big mistake in the big game. So that really sets them up really nicely going into the Super Bowl. And then just real quick, I'm going to talk about the coverage and the officiating. So in this game, there was a lot of... Uh, let them play, I'll say, from the officiating. Uh, the officials definitely let a lot of stuff go. Uh, Sean Murphy Bunting, a cornerback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, actually got an interception on a play where he was holding underneath the receiver. I think it was Alan Lazard. He was holding him underneath his shoulder pad to keep him close, and then he kind of pulled himself in front to get the interception. Um, but here's what I'll say about, because there was a lot of that from both teams. There was a lot of little subtle holds, and uh, little tugs of the jersey, and little a little bit being too handsy with the receivers for what some officiating crews might do. But what I'll say is, uh, in an NFC divisional playoff game, I'm kind of happy that the refs let them play a little more. Maybe some of the calls should have been made because there was some that I thought, okay, that's that's going a little far. Maybe you should throw the flag on that one. But I was generally happy that they did let them play a little bit more. And just to briefly explain my my reasoning there. If you think about the NFL and football in general today, especially in college football with the targeting rules, the rules are set up in every which way for the offense, for the receiver, for the quarterback. There's not really many rules that go in favor of the defense. It's so It must be so hard to play defense in the NFL. You're playing against freak athlete receivers uh, who are really fast and can cut on a dime. And if you even look at them or breathe on them the right way, or the wrong way, sorry, you get a flag. So I do kind of like that they let them play a little bit more in this game, but uh, that does have to be you know, kept in check. Now the, now the reason that this is controversial is because on one of the last plays of the game, uh, the Green Bay Packers were on defense, they needed a stop, and just before they actually kicked a field goal when it was fourth down and goal, I think they should have went for it to take the, for the tie because they were down eight at the time. They kicked the field goal to go down five, and then they needed a stop. They had three timeouts against Tom Brady. Maybe not the approach I would have taken if I was Matt LaFleur, but I guess he had more faith in his defense than Aaron Rodgers, which that doesn't really make sense to me. But anyway, they ended up getting them to third down. Uh, The Tampa Bay Buccaneers actually passed. They didn't complete the pass, but Kevin King was called for holding on, I believe it was Tyler Johnson, first down Buccaneers, and they advanced to the Super Bowl. 
there was a lot of people, including some of my friends who were saying, oh my God, how could they call that? How could they call that? And real quick, I just want to say, I think it was a good call. Uh, yes, they let them play a lot during that game. But if you go back and you look at that particular play, uh, there was a lot of, of under the jersey, under the shoulder pad holds dr- during the game. But that particular play, Kevin King holding Tyler Johnson, instead of grabbing his jersey, he reached out and he actually grabbed his undershirt. Now, the difference between most guys' undershirts and most guys' jerseys, or all jerseys, I should say, most jerseys do not give too much. If you grab a guy by his jersey, it'll stretch a little bit, but the, the material used in NFL jerseys is not its not going to give the most give. It's not super, super elasticy. Whereas an undershirt, especially the undershirt type that Tyler Johnson had, Kevin King got a hold of that thing, and it literally stretched about a little over a foot. So if you're an official, you see a defensive player grabbing a hold of a guy's undershirt, and the undershirt stretches for a full foot, and maybe even a little bit more, like 13, 14 inches, there's no way that they could miss that. There's no way they couldn't call that. So for all the people saying, oh, they let them play all game, you can't call that. If you see it, and it's that egregious and that blatant, you have to call it. Although, I, like I said, I like that they kind of give the DBs a little bit of room to play, a little bit of room to be a bit more handsy. That has to be kept somewhat under wraps. Like You can't grab an undershirt and stretch it 13 inches and not get a flag. Next up, we're going to move over to the AFC side and talk really quickly about Patrick Mahomes and his Kansas City Chiefs advancing to their second Super Bowl in as many years. Super impressive feat. Uh, AFC East fans, other than Bills fans, rejoice. We don't have to hear about Josh Allen going to a Super Bowl. Uh, Everything in my mind and my heart was telling me the Bills were going to win this game and they were going to win in the Super Bowl. And that's all I was going to hear about all offseason. But the football gods came through for me. They said, Brandon, it's all good. Uh, Mahomes is going to do what he does. And Andy Reid is going to do what he does. And they came through and they got the win. Final score was Chiefs 38, Bills 24. And for me, what this game came down to and what I thought would be you know, the biggest case before the game would, was who is going to keep whose stars more in check? When you look at the Bills, it's definitely Cole Beasley uh, Josh Allen for sure, and then Stephon Diggs. And then when you look at the Chiefs side of things, of course, is Patrick Mahomes. And then their two biggest weapons, I would say, has got to be Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. So let's look at the Bills first. Uh, they were the team that came out with the L. And their two stars, you know, Cole Beasley had seven catches on nine targets. That's a pretty good rate. Uh, only two targets he didn't grab uh, for 88 yards. Not too bad. No touchdowns. And then Stephon Diggs, six catches on 11 targets. So that's not great. That's a little over 50% of his targets for 77 yards. And again, no touchdowns. So that's you know mediocre at best. Then we go over to the Chiefs side. Tyreek Hill, nine catches on 11 targets. That's very good. 172 yards, no touchdowns. Travis Kelsey, 13 of 15. 13 catches, 15 targets. 118 yards, two touchdowns. That is spectacular. So, I mean, when you look at it, the stars for the Kansas City Chiefs, Mahomes had a great game. He fed his two playmakers. Josh Allen had a decent game. He did have 88 yards on the ground, but his stars couldn't quite get going. And, you know, the offensive firepower of the Chiefs did what it did. I was a little disappointed in Buffalo's defense. Uh, They had two very, very good safeties. A lot of people say that that's the best safety tandem in the league. Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer. 
Tredavious White is a great receiver as well, but there's just so many explosive weapons for the Chiefs. And on top of those two guys that I mentioned for the Chiefs, you also have to deal with McCole Hardman, and their run game isn't any slouch either. So uh, Chiefs came away with a big win, 38-24, and they advanced to their second Super Bowl against the Buccaneers. And one last tidbit about these uh, conference championships. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to be the home team for a Super Bowl for the first time in NFL history. No team has ever hosted a Super Bowl and been in the Super Bowl. You know, last year Miami hosted the Super Bowl. I was like, oh my God, what if they made it to the Super Bowl? It'd be so magical. And they went 5-11. and 11. No team before this year. And who's the quarterback of that team? Tom Brady. This guy just keeps making history in every which way. So that's pretty crazy. All right, so now we've talked about the conference championship games. Now it's time to talk about what everyone around the league has been talking about, and that is Deshaun Watson. So real quick, there was one NFL head coaching position that was still open, and it was the Houston Texans. Now a lot of people thought if there's any, you know, any silver lining, any chance at all that the Texans might keep Deshaun Watson, it's if they hire the right head coach and Deshaun Watson says, you know what? Uh, this is great. They maybe included his input and maybe picked the guy that he wanted out of the guys that were remaining. Uh, I think he wanted Eric Bieniemy is what I'm assuming he might have wanted. Maybe even Brian Dable because he's done great things with Josh Allen. Uh, but the Houston Texans turned around and they signed a dude named David Cully, who, if I'm being honest, never heard of him before this. Uh, and as soon as I heard this next thing I'm about to tell you guys is when I knew that a, it wasn't a great hire in my own opinion. Maybe he ends up being great. Who knows? But in my opinion, it wasn't a great hire. And the other reason that I knew Deshaun Watson is for sure gone. So David Culley's last job was with the Baltimore Ravens. Okay, you might think, oh, that's a good team. Maybe he was doing some good things over there. But wait till you hear his role. So David Culley, yeah, he was over with the Baltimore Ravens. Great team. He was their wide receivers coach. Who are the Baltimore Ravens wide receivers that are, you know, legit stars who have shown great improvement? Hollywood Brown, if anything, has kind of regressed. He had some drop issues this year. Um, outside of that, I mean, they just got Des Bryant. He hasn't shown too much. Brandon Boykin, yeah, he's all right. They got some so-so receivers. Willie Sneed, he's not working with, you know, su superior talent anyway, but doesn't scream, you know, amazing things to me. And he was also the assistant head coach with that team. You know, that, that says a little bit more. And the passing game coordinator. So if you would have said run game coordinator, I would have said, okay, Baltimore is one of the best running, game, running teams there is. But their passing attack isn't great. You know, he does have Mark Andrews to work with as well. That's, that's one guy I forgot to mention. But with that resume, you know, he's had some other stints. He was a quarterback coach with the Bills from 17 to 18 I uh, worked with the Chiefs a little bit from 2013 to 2016 as well. But the resume, for me, it was underwhelming compared to guys like Brian Dable and Eric Bieniemy. So after the news came out that, you know, the Chiefs, not the Chiefs, excuse me, that the Houston Texans were going to hire David Culley to be their new head coach, uh, almost right after that, Deshaun Watson officially came out and requested a trade from the team. So now I want to go through and say my top five uh, most probable, I'm not going to say best fits because, I mean, his best fit might be with a team that would never would never go out and get him. But I think I'm going to go through my top five most probable landing spots for Deshaun Watson in order. 
And we're going to start with the Jets. So why the Jets? For one, Deshaun Watson has allegedly said that between the Jets and Dolphins, who are going to be my number two on this list, I'll just get, let that cat out of the bag. Out of those two teams, he would prefer the Jets. And I think it's because his number one on his list in terms of who he wanted the Texans to hire as their head coach was Robert Sala. He was hired to be the Jets head coach. And I think that there's a connection there. He wants to play for Robert Sala. Maybe he also likes the vibe of being in New York. So New York Jets are going to be my number one most probable for Deshaun Watson to land. On top of that, they have probably the most appealing capital in terms of draft capital that the Houston Texans would want for that trade to happen. They hold the number two overall pick. Uh, they also hold another pick in the first round, and then they would have to probably give maybe two seconds or their first from next year or something along those lines. So I think the Houston Texans and the Jets, that's probably the number one uh, swap for Deshaun Watson. Number two, like I said, it's going to be the Miami Dolphins. Why? Uh, for one, they have a similar setup to the Jets where they have two first-round picks this year. Uh, it's been speculated that, and I mean, I think it makes sense, but it's been speculated that the Texans will accept no less than an offer that has, you know, three first-rounders or, you know, two first-rounders and a first-round talent. So Miami is in a unique position as well where they have two first-round picks. They have the number three overall pick and they have the number 18 overall pick. So if they package those two player, those two picks together and maybe their first round pick from next year, they can be in business for Deshaun Watson. Now, the other reason that this, I think, could happen is because a lot of talks have been happening around the Miami Dolphins uh, about them not being sold on Tua Tungavailoa and how some of the players are not sold on Tua Tungavailoa. Now, if you took Deshaun Watson and you made him a Miami Dolphin, and you kept that defense, and if you if you did the trade the way I said, you would still have two second-round picks. Maybe you use one of them on a receiver and one of them on a running back or maybe a linebacker, and you put that team on the field to start 2021 with Deshaun Watson under center. That is, if you ask me, that is a huge competition to Buffalo, if not probably ahead of Buffalo, to win the AFC East and most likely make some noise in the playoffs. That would make the Miami Dolphins instant contenders if they made that trade. Now, why did I not put them ahead of the Jets? For one, if I'm the Houston Texans, I would look more towards a team that holds a number two pick than a team that holds a number three pick because that's obviously a better position to sit. It's one position higher. And on top of that, um, the reason I think that the Dolphins may be less likely to go through with this trade is because I think that there is a part of Brian Flores and Chris Greer that still believes in Tua Tungavailoa, and if he can turn out to be a very good quarterback, he'll also be much cheaper than Deshaun Watson will be for the next you know, three or four years while he's on his rookie deal. Number three, I'm going to go with the Carolina Panthers. I think that that could be a great fit. The Carolina Panthers hold the number eight pick, so... You know, if the Houston Texans reports have been true about how they want three first rounders, one of them's got to be pretty high. You know, eight, eight is pretty high. I don't know if it's going to be quite high enough. They also only hold one first round pick, though, uh, in this draft. So they'd have to probably give their first rounder next year and then a first rounder the year after that. Or maybe multiple seconds could be uh, a factor as well. Or maybe a player that they're looking to get rid of that could also be uh, in effect. 
So I'm going to put the Carolina Panthers at number three on this list. Now, number four. Number four is a little bit interesting. I'm going to go with the Denver Broncos. So they sit one position behind the Carolina Panthers in the draft order. They draft ninth. Uh, but I think that this could go down for a few reasons. For one, the consensus of Drew Locke, I mean, there isn't a huge consensus. I would say some people think that he has the tools to be legit, maybe just needs uh, some more time, but he could be you know, a franchise quarterback. Some people think he's a bust. If the Houston Texans are of the mentality that you know, Drew Locke is a serviceable starter, at very least, you know, we think we can build a team around him. He doesn't have to be an all-star, but we can build a good team around him. He could be a trade piece. They could also include the number nine pick, and they could potentially make a swing to land uh, Deshaun Watson. They also, the other thing that I think that the Denver Broncos have that could interest the Houston Texans is they have a surplus of good receivers. You got to remember, they have Cortland Sutton coming back from injury this year. He was out all year with a torn ACL. Then they also drafted two receivers uh, this past draft, KJ Hamler, Jerry Judy. And on top of that, I think they have one of the NFL's most underrated receivers in Tim Patrick. So I think that if they included maybe one of those guys, if they, depending on whichever guy the Texans are highest on, maybe they're highest on Cortland Sutton. Uh, if they think he can come back to form before his pre-injury form, maybe they're high on Tim Patrick. Maybe they're even high on Jerry Judy. Any one of those three guys, maybe two of them, uh, could be included in a deal because if you get Deshaun Watson, you don't need all of those you know, really good receivers to make it work. So you can potentially afford to get rid of one, maybe even two of them. And now for number five on my list of most likely landing spots for Deshaun Watson uh, I'm going to go with the San Francisco 49ers. So they hold the 12th pick in this year's draft. They would most likely have to couple that with the first rounder next year. And the reason I think that this trade could be probable is because I don't think the 49ers are quite sold on Jimmy G. He seems to be getting hurt a lot. Even when he's healthy, he's not, he's not super accurate. He doesn't do any one thing really, really well. So I think that they could look to move on from him. If the Texans value Jimmy G at all, he can maybe be worth, you know, a late second, early third, potentially. So I could see the San Francisco 49ers saying, we'll give you number 12, we'll give you our first rounder next year, we'll give you Jimmy G, and we'll give you, say, a second next year, or maybe a second this year, or potentially even two-thirds. There's a lot of options that the 49ers could pursue that I think that the uh, Texans might be wise to listen to one of those offers. So there's a lot of a lot of options of teams that could go for Deshaun Watson. But again, my number one, and I think it's where he will end up, and it's really sad to say because then he'd be in the same division as the Miami Dolphins, a team who potentially could pass on him if he gets to this team, uh, and that would be the New York Jets, the new home for Deshaun Watson, a now, I just want to talk a little bit about the Senior Bowl. So first and foremost, I want to start off with the most Dolphin-related uh, item about the Senior Bowl, and that is that the Miami Dolphins are coaching two Alabama products that I think are very likely to potentially be drafted by the Dolphins in the first and maybe even second round. And those two guys are uh, Devontae Smith, receiver, and Najee Harris at running back. 
It's super cool that the Dolphins are going to have hands-on experience coaching Najee Harris on the field. Uh, Devontae Smith, because of his finger, is not actually going to be participating in any contact or on-field stuff, but he is going through meetings with the Dolphins coaching staff, so they're going to get a real sense of what he's like. There was a press conference with uh, Brian Flores, head coach of the Miami Dolphins, where he was asked about Devontae Smith and his slight frame. Does he think that that'll hinder him at the next level at all? And I swear to you, De- Brian Flores defended De- uh, Devontae Smith as if he was already a Miami Dolphin. He was saying, you know, you can nitpick a guy all you want, but the guy makes big plays in the biggest games. And it's true. I mean, from his freshman season, when he stepped on the field, he had the game-winning touchdown in the national championship. And then you fast forward to his senior season, his last game as a uh, Crimson Tide member, he goes for over 200 yards, three touchdowns against Ohio State. So the guy has done nothing his career but make big plays, set records, and win the Heisman for the first time a receiver's done that since 1991. So it's really awesome that the Dolphins are getting hands-on, first-hand experience with those guys. A little more on Devontae Smith. He was also interviewed, and he was asked, you know, obviously reporters know the Dolphins hold the number three pick, and Devontae Smith is projected to go around, you know, the top five, top six area. So they asked him, they said, have you and Tua Tungvaloa talked about maybe reuniting in, in Miami? And he said, yeah, you know, we've talked about it a little bit. So that's super cool to hear that those guys are already thinking about the possibility of being reunited and playing with each other. Now, next up, I want to talk a little bit about Kadarius Tony, who is a receiver from the University of Florida. Uh, he is looked at as a, you know, primarily a slot guy, a ga- kind of a gadget guy. He's really fast, really shifty. Uh, he makes a lot of plays after the catch. You may have seen his highlight from the Senior Bowl practice where it was a one-on-one, shakes the corner, destroys him off the release, uh, fakes the slant. Corner absolutely bites on the slant, and then he just shifts right out to the corner route. Wide open, drops the pass. And I have heard a little bit of rumors that Kadarius Tony does have some concentration drops, which kind of scares me. I was looking at him as potentially a guy the Dolphins could grab in the second round if they didn't take Devontae Smith third. Uh, But seeing that, you know, I mean, a guy can always get over concentration drops. That is a thing that, you know, has been proven. We've seen that before. Guys can get over that kind of stuff. But seeing it and, you know, the Dolphins being firsthand there to see it, I think that may rule him out of Dolphins' conversations. But nonetheless, he is still great after the catch. It's just those concentration jobs that he has to work on. Now, the last thing I want to talk about with the Senior Bowl, it's something I've touched on briefly before, but I think a lot of people underestimate the value of being one of the coaching staff selected to coach at the Senior Bowl. So Miami Dolphins were obviously selected to be one coaching staff. The other coaching staff is Matt Rule in the Carolina Panthers. Now, why is this significant? For the simple reason that if if you ask me, the Carolina Panthers are not sold on Teddy Bridgewater. I don't think he is their quarterback of the future. They tried it this year. They thought maybe we can get him. You know, we don't have to pay super quarterback money, but we have a, maybe we'll have a good defense. We've spent all our draft picks on defense. Maybe we can make this work. It, excuse me, it didn't work. They're drafting again in the top 10. So obviously it didn't work. So that puts the Carolina Panthers in a position where they may want to draft a quarterback. Now, it's really great for them that, you know, they have guys like Mac Jones, who's at the Senior Bowl. He's a potential guy that they could draft um, with their pick. You know, if if they deem 
that he is the guy that they think he is. See, that here's the thing. A lot of teams, all they're going to get to see is what did Mac Jones do at Alabama? Do we think that he is you know, worthy of being an NFL first-round pick and better yet, a top six or seven pick? So if you look at a team like, say, the Detroit Lions, who will also be looking for a quarterback, they're going to be in the same position as the Panthers, where they're, they're going to be asking questions, is Mac Jones worth our pick here? But the Panthers will have the leg up of saying, we're going to know better than the Detroit Lions or any other team because we got to see the kid live in action. We got to coach him already. So maybe they build a rapport and they say, okay, Justin Fields is gone. Trevor Lawrence obviously is gone. Zach Wilson may be gone by pick number six. But if they feel really good about Mac uh, Jones, they might, because of this senior bowl, be able to go up and pick him and they would have perfect justification. We saw him at the senior bowl. He played great, very coachable. And that's why we decided to go ahead and take him. All right, so that wraps it up for the Senior Bowl. Now I want to talk about one of my favorite new sports, uh, or I should say one of my new favorite sports, the UFC. I want to talk about some of the upcoming fights that are going to be really exciting that I'm excited to see. Uh, The first fight I want to talk about is Corey Sanhagen versus Frankie Edgar. That is going to be the co-main event at Bantamweight on UFC Fight Night. Uh, Overeem versus Volkov, which is the main event at heavyweight. Uh, This fight night is going down on February 6th in Vegas at the UFC Apex. Super excited to see that. Corey Sanhagen is the number two ranked uh, Bantamweight. Frankie Edgar is the number four ranked Bantamweight. And we're going to talk about the Bantamweight uh, next title fight, which is coming up soon. And what I think will happen is, you know, the winner of Sanhagen, Edgar, is probably going to get the next crack at a title shot unless the title fight is very close and they want to do an immediate rematch. But I really like Corey Sanhagen. He is ranked two because he lost to Aljamain Sterling a little while ago, but he is super, super technical with his striking, very fast, and I think that he will be at some point in the near future, he will be the Bantamweight champion. So the next fight I want to talk about is Kamaro Usman versus Gilbert Burns, which is the welterweight title fight. That is the headliner of UFC 258, uh, Saturday, February 13th. This one is also going to be in Vegas. This fight is huge. Kamaro Usman has been a great champion. Uh, he's fought off guys like Colby Covington. He's fought off guys like uh, Jorge Masvidal. He's fought off straight killers. He's proven that he is a dog, and he's going to have what I think is his biggest test to date against Gilbert Burns, who is an absolutely scary striker. Gilbert Burns is a huge human being to be fighting at welterweight. Uh, Super excited for this one, and I think it'll be an exciting fight. Uh, The next fight I want to talk about is the UFC 259 card, and this is what I was talking about earlier. This is... I think this is the best UFC fight card I've seen since I've been a fan. So listen to this. There is a title fight in this card that's not even a co-main. There's three title fights on one UFC card. Uh, If I didn't already say it, sorry, this is going to be Saturday, March 6th, again in Vegas at the UFC Apex. The third, or sorry, the first of three title fights is that Bantamweight title fight I was talking about earlier. Uh, Piotr Jan, who is the Bantamweight champion, is going to take on Aljamain Sterling, one of my favorite fighters, the Funk Master. Uh, This is going to be a fun one. Aljamain Sterling is a great grappler. 
Uh, he's not as great with his hands, but he can still land, you know, good strikes. And then Piotr Jan is just a killer with his hands. Haven't seen him on the ground yet. He may be good with jujitsu and grappling, but I just haven't seen it personally. So it's going to be exciting to see how Aljamain Sterling tries to get this one to the ground. I'm, I'm sure that's what he'll probably try and do and uh, see if he can work Piotr Jan on the ground or if Piotr Jan's striking and uh, submission defense and takedown defense is up to par and he can keep it on the feet and fight off Aljamain Sterling. Then on the same card, we have another title fight, women's featherweight, and you know what that means. Amanda Nunes, the Leon is back in the octagon. She's going to be fighting Megan Anderson. Uh, I mean, you guys already know, Amanda Nunes is the GOAT in terms of women's MMA. She might be the GOAT in general. You know, some people might give it to John Jones or Khabib, but I think Amanda Nunes being a uh, two-division champion, I think she's the longest-standing uh, two-division champion, longest time anyone's ever held two consecutive belts for sure. So it's going to be cool to see her take on Megan Anderson. Um, it's going to be a good fight. But I do see Nunez coming out victorious. This is one that I wanted to talk about because Amanda Nunez has been inactive for a little bit. But uh, I think she's going to make some noise in this fight. And then the main event of UFC 259 is the first super fight we've had in quite some time in the UFC. It is the light heavyweight championship fight between Jan Blahovich and Israel Adesanya who is currently the middleweight champion. Izzy is going to be looking to move up to light heavyweight and grab his second belt. Now when I first heard about this fight I was a little bit like it's oh, kind of weird why is Blahovich getting a super fight and it's his first time he's ever fighting with the belt. You know he just won the belt against uh, Reyes a little while back. Why is he already getting a super fight? But then I realized uh, it's not so much his super fight as it is Izzy's super fight. He's the one moving up. And for John Blahovich, you can really just look at it as another title defense. It could have been against a guy in light heavyweight. It could have been against a middleweight. Either way for him, it's just a title defense. Whereas for Izzy, the guy moving up, it's more so looked at as a super fight for him. But when you look at this fight, you know, Jan Blahovich. He's got what they call Polish power in his hands. He is a dirty, dirty striker. Uh, he can do it all. And then when you look at Izzy Adesanya, what he has going for him is his length, his timing. He's a great counterpuncher. He's got great kicks. Uh, he's very, very good uh, at keeping his range and avoiding shots and not taking too much damage. So I'm excited to see how that one goes. I think if John Blahovich can connect on one solid strike, uh, maybe he puts the lights out on Izzy. Who knows? We haven't seen it in the UFC yet. Uh, but if Izzy can keep his distance, land his kicks from the outside, I think that he could come out with this one. So it's really crazy because I have no idea who's going to be taking that fight. Uh, next fight, there's two more I want to, or sorry, three more I want to talk about. Uh, it was just announced recently. It's going to be Saturday, March 13th at the UFC Apex. It's going to be fight night, Edwards uh, Chimaev. This fight has been put on two times already, I believe, and it's been canceled once for Leon Edwards most recently. And I believe the first time it was canceled because of uh, Kamza Chimaev. So hopefully March 13th, let's cross our fingers that these two are both able to fight because uh, I've been looking forward to this one at welterweight. Leon Edwards is ranked number three at welterweight and Kamzat is ranked number 15. So a lot of people look at that and like, well, why is Kamzat getting that fight? But it's because the guy is 9-0. and 0. 
He's KOing middleweights. He's taking fights wherever. He's super active. And he's really exciting. So I think that Dana kind of wants to get him up uh, with the upper echelon. And if he can beat a guy like Leon Edwards, who's number three, that'll immediately catapult him into the top five, I would say, maybe top six. And he'll be looking for maybe one more fight before he gets a title shot if he continues to dominate the way he has. But don't sleep on Leon Edwards. He is a great fighter as well. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see. I'm excited for that one. Last two are both going to be on UFC 260. Uh, So like I said, UFC 259 might be the best card I've seen in a long time. But UFC 260 also looks really good. It's got two title fights on it. The featherweight title fight is going to be Alexander Volkanovski versus Brian Ortega. T-City Brian Ortega, who just got a huge win recently over uh, the Korean Zombie to get this title shot. And Volkanovski is coming off of two back-to-back wins. The second one, not too sure, but two back-to-back wins over Max Holloway. So he's going to be getting his second title defense, uh, first title defense against a guy other than Max Holloway. Interested to see how that one does because Brian Ortega looked like a different dude in the octagon in his last fight. So we'll see if he can take down Volkanovski. Or maybe if he doesn't, then Holloway will get a trilogy fight against Volkanovski, which would be super cool as well. And the last fight, which is the main event of UFC 260, uh, March 7th, sorry, March 27th, uh, Saturday, which is also going to be uh, in Vegas. All these fights I've talked about are in Vegas. Uh, is going to be the heavyweight title fight, Stipe Miocic versus Francis Ngannou, number two. They did already fight before. Uh, Stipe got the win, and Francis Ngannou in that fight wasn't as aggressive as he usually is. He's known for knocking guys out inside of the first round. You know, he's got crazy power in his hands. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see if he changes up his tactics the second time around against Stipe Miocic. And let's see if he's able to get a win. But Stipe, you know, baddest man on the planet. He usually finds a way to get it done. And I think he might in this fight. But you never know with Francis Ngannou. If he just touches you in the right spot with all that power, the lights go out. So I'm excited, very excited. Whenever you see a heavyweight fight, uh, one of the high-level heavyweight fights, they're super exciting. So to see the heavyweight title fight with a guy like Stipe, probably the best heavyweight we've ever seen in the UFC, and then Francis Ngannou, maybe the heaviest hitter we've ever seen in the UFC heavyweight division, it's super exciting. Cannot wait for this one. All right, so we talked about the UFC, we talked about the Senior Bowl, talked about the NFL, talked about Deshaun Watson. That just about wraps it up for this episode, guys. I want to thank everyone for rocking with me. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for tuning in to this episode. This week, I think it's going to be Wednesday or Thursday, I'm going to be getting to you guys with the mock draft episode coming to you guys live and direct. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be first round, including trades. Uh, but other than that, I mean, again, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you guys in the next one. Peace. Yeah. It's be a life, no gimmick. Nah.